today on behalf of the Refugee and Migrant Practice Team. Um, we're really excited to host today's session on culturally responsive care. Um, and we have Emily joining us today um, to talk a bit about culturally responsive care in the youth mental health space. Um, we would like to acknowledge that we were going to have another speaker, Naraja Clay, who is a First Nations woman, um, who is a board advisor here at Headspace. Um, and unfortunately she's unable to make this and we acknowledge that conversations around culturally responsive care is a shared conversation amongst First Nations people and people from a migrant and refugee background. With that being said, I would also like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who, um, and pay my respects to the elders past and present. Um, acknowledge that this is a shared journey as we navigate the space as the refugee and migrant practice team um, and that there cannot be racial justice without First Nations justice. And um, yeah, just really excited to have this conversation today. But Lisa or Kate, did you have any words before we get started? It's okay if you don't. <laughs> um, not really, only to say hello. And I think just from the um, last few months and starting in this work, I think um, sort of trying to think of um, a few sort of keywords that have stood true for me. Um, and I'd probably say for me personally, um, having a spirit of curiosity, um, lots of reflection and humility. Um, so not that we know it all in this space, but being able to, um, I guess, ask better questions with the more knowledge that we, we end up building on um, would probably sum up my learnings. Thanks, Looking forward to the discussion. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Um, cool, we might just jump straight into today's session. Um, just a bit of housekeeping. Um, if you did have any questions that you would like to ask um, Emily, we ask that you just maybe um, send Betsy a private message in the Zoom chat um, and then Betsy will be moderating the questions and we'll answer the questions towards the end of the session today. Um, so with that, thank you so much, Emily, for joining us today. Um, we've been around Headspace for a while and thought you know all the ins and outs. It's awesome to have you join us today to speak to your experience. I guess as a starting point, could you just tell us a bit about yourself, introduce yourself, and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, as many of you may know, Headspace has been really integral to my personal recovery journey with mental health. Um, so my name's Emily, my pronouns are they, them. I'm talking with you from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm originally from Wajuk Noongar land over in WA. Um, so it's lovely to see some people in the chat from WA as well. I do miss home quite a bit, particularly because it's really cold today in Melbourne. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been working as a lived in living experience, like advocate and worker for quite some time now. Um, did a bit of peer work with Headspace um, and I'm very, very privileged to work with Amy and Dylan in the IAM team um, with the Visible Project, which is super amazing. Um, and yeah, I'm a person from a refugee and migrant background. Um, my, I was born in WA, but my mom came over to Australia when she was 13. She's a Vietnam War refugee. Um, and my dad came over when he was 15 by himself from Malaysia as well. So I'm, I feel incredibly privileged in comparison to them to be able to speak English as my native language. Um, and culture has just been incredibly intrinsic to my journey 
with everything, including mental health. And yeah, just feel very, very lucky to be here today and speak with you. So um, as, as a bit of context as well, I, I'm a mental health professional myself, so feel free to throw curly questions. Um, and I think it's really important for us to kind of question things um, and really be um, like practice a lot of cultural humility in this as well. Um, and it's these sorts of conversations that I really love. So feel free to throw Betsy anything. But yeah. Thanks for that intro, Emily. Um, I guess just you kind of touched on this a little bit, but could you tell us a bit about what being or belonging to the migrant and refugee community means to you? And if this is a community that you might even identify with? Yeah, um, honestly, I didn't for a really long time. Um, I really rejected the fact that I was other really um, for a very, very long time in my life. Um, and it's only been maybe over the past five, 10 years, I've become a bit more okay, like even just eating cultural food. Um, I remember I, I told my mom that I was Italian because all I would eat was pasta and pizza just because I just refused to like accept the fact that I was other. Um, it's very obvious for a lot of people um, that I'm not white. Um, and I think I discovered that I wasn't really quote unquote normal um, from a very young age when people started, you know, doing things like pulling their eyes back and saying they look like me and things like that. Um, and I think identifying as someone from a refugee and migrant background was something that I thought was a weakness for a very long time. Um, and I think it wasn't just like, no one really just thinks like that. Um, it was more like societal norms kind of put that upon me. Um, and I felt very excluded and things were inaccessible for people like me. Um, and it's only over time and through a lot of therapy and recovery and self-exploration that I've really come to realize that my culture is a strength and it's a part of who I am. And it's something that I'm really proud of. Um, and if I cry, by the way, it's totally normal. I'm just a sentient puddle. Um, but I, I'm so proud of my parents to have come from where they come from and the resilience and the beauty in each of their cultures is wonderful. And yeah, I, I, I saw this, um, this post the other day that said uh, a foreign accent is a sign of bravery. And I really believe that. I think you're just touching on so many points that not only many young people across this nation kind of echo and sit with, um, even I do, like even the whole journey of accepting um, your cultural background, for me that's South Indian, um, and navigating what it means to be Australian but also be from your own cultural background and not feeling like the other is something that is a really important discussion. And also acknowledging that journey that we all go through of feeling like it's normal and feeling that it's okay to eat our cultural foods or be proud of our names or be proud of like our parents and their accents and the way that they sometimes pronounce words that are hilarious. Um, so that's such an important point. And then kind of touching into what you said about support um, and mental health and your culture being a strength. Could you speak a bit about if you feel like culture, your family, your community have influence the way you understand or even learned about mental health and mental illness? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I find this question kind of like endearingly funny um, because I feel like a lot of us, um, 
we, we each have our own culture um, and it's not like one sort of influences the other, they're intertwined inherently. Um, and so, yeah, culture has significantly shaped um, my mental health journey, particularly when it comes to treatment um, and seeking help within Australia. Um, I might go on a bit of a rant and feel free to stop me. Um, but I first sort of presented with symptoms um, when I was about six. Um, I didn't realize that they were symptoms at the time. I, we were in a classroom and we were reading sections out of a book and like taking turns. And I remember counting the people in front of me and determining which section was mine and just like freaking out about that and practicing it in my head. And I think I stumbled over one word and I thought about that for like a week. Um, and I had my first panic attack on stage when I was playing music and like all these like small little bits that I now have the language to describe. But at the time, I just thought it was totally normal. I thought everyone else was going through the same thing. Um, and particularly coming from, um, so there's like, there's individualist cultures, which is like Australian, um, and there's collectivist cultures, like my, my mom's Vietnamese, my dad's Malaysian cultures are both collectivist. And that's much more about like protecting the unit um, and sort of saving face. So emotional expression was not really a thing. Um, we didn't talk about emotion at all um, in my family growing up. And I'm a I'm a very emotional person. Um, and I think that was incredibly difficult for me. Um, I, I wore a mask for a very, very long time, slightly because I'm autistic, but also because of just how not okay it was for me to express myself emotionally to them. Um, and I remember I had a breakdown at school and I, I dropped the mask for one second when I was 13 and everyone thought of me as this like stoic like study I, I was the picture perfect child of an Asian child had the bob and haircut and everything um and they sent me to the school counselor because they knew that something was definitely wrong because I didn't really show emotion and I went and saw a psychologist afterwards and was diagnosed with your standard depression anxiety and I remember um telling the psychologist that I didn't think I would get any better. Um, and they sort of thought that that was like something that depressed people say. Um, but really I had this inherent belief because in my dad's culture, um, excess, <laughs> excess emotions are kind of attributed to a transgression that your ancestor had done. So like, I thought that my great, 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 great grandfather at some point had done something and I was kind of paying the price for it and it was manifesting in me. So I literally thought that I could not get better. There was nothing I could do about it because someone in a previous life had done something. Um, and there was just a lot of things like that that just kind of kept happening. Um, like a lot of like internalized racism manifested as like body dysmorphia, things like that. Um, and just a lot of sort of misdiagnoses and misbeing handled because it was, there wasn't really, um, I never really found a practitioner that was of the same cultural background as me and really understood what I was feeling. Um, and my parents just really, they really, really tried at the time to understand, but I come from a family where, you know, my mom, just as an example, you know, spent several weeks on a wooden dinghy lying underneath boards, thinking that she was going to die, escaping from a war. And 
she doesn't believe that trauma exists. Like this is the sort of level of understanding that we're coming from. So if I went and got a mental health care plan, my parents were terrified that I would never get a job. I would never go to school, like that sort of thing. It was just such a foreign concept. Um, and I think that that took me a very long time to learn um, and a very long time to understand that like Western practices um, and Eastern practices don't necessarily have to be so discreet. Um, you can have both together. Um, and I've definitely done a lot of healing in my own personal time to just understand that I could take bits of both, that I am this weird amalgamation uh, with a weird accent as well, that can just, I can pick the bits of the culture and create my own community. Um, and it really took like finding peer support to find that, you know, I don't have to go through this alone. Um, and there are other people that also have parents whose love languages are bowls of cut up fruit and like other things like that. It's, it's such a wonderful experience, um, really connecting with people who understand what you've gone through because they've lived it. End of my TED talk for now, sorry. <laughs> no, that's such a beautiful way of like kind of showcasing that journey for you. And it's unique to you, but there are definitely similarities for loads of young people across this continent and I think um firstly shout out to all the parents that cut up fruit for you their long <laughs> language um but yeah I think there were many different points so hopefully we can touch on a little bit over the over the next little bit um I guess jumping on to this I think you started touching on this a little bit but what might be some common experiences or barriers that young people from a migrant and refugee background face that maybe aren't considered when we do talk about mental health I know you talked a bit about trauma and racism but could you speak a bit more to that yeah absolutely um I think particularly for refugee and migrant people generally um they're often in, in like survival mode and you have to be like my my parents are the most resilient people that I know and they've given me all the privileges that I have today because they were just constantly fearful of people that weren't us um, and I was raised in that sort of environment. So of course, engaging with a clinician who looked nothing like me um, and was a, of a different age bracket as well was horrifying and talking about things that like I'd never spoken about as well. That was really, really scary. Um, and like we all know that like the biggest thing about healing, particularly within one-to-one -one therapy is the relationship. And the big, like one of the biggest reasons why young people sort of don't engage with mental health services is because we have had a bad experience and we don't want to do that again um and I really found it very very difficult to engage with traditional systems of mental health support for a very very long time um which is why you know I do the work that I do now and try to change that narrative um but a really big part of it was that I very much felt like if I thought there was like one pathway right you tick the boxes for a certain diagnosis, you get put on the one pathway. If the one pathway does not work for you, you were the problem. Um, and that's very much what I thought it was like. Um, and I just kept feeling like I was inherently broken because all these, <laughs> all these evidence-based things had um, really shown that like, well, it was working for other people, why wasn't it working for me? And I think it was just because I was too complex and kind of put in the too hard box. Um, and that was very difficult. Another thing was that uh, my parents 
you know, we, we talk about like systems theory and how important it is to include other people in your care, but that really was not explored until I had literally mentioned like the fact that domestic violence was happening, which I didn't know it was domestic violence at the time. Um, and then we got put in family therapy. But I think if like my parents have been sort of gently brought into that equation and built up some sort of health literacy or I think it's two way. If the if the practitioner had understood a bit more about my culture and learned a bit some of the language that would have worked well with my parents and me, and my parents I had learned up to them, we could meet in the middle somewhere. Um, but it was just this sort of like harsh experience after harsh experience of us just really not fitting well with the system that seemed to be perfect for everyone else. Um, yeah, it, it was it was a very very difficult experience. Um, because we were trying to not just adapt to learning what emotions are, um, but learning what emotions are in a different language, in a different culture with people that we didn't know um, and we couldn't inherently trust. It was very, very scary. Um, and I think there's a lot of things that I would change if I went back through it. And I guess you've touched on loads of very, very important points. And I guess this speaks to the power of having living experience advocates and peer workers who've kind of been through it and can bring that expertise and knowledge because a lot of the times it's not something that is in a clinical handbook especially when working with our communities the knowledge sits with communities and our communities are so unique each individual family is so unique there's so many communities identities experiences that it's hard to find that one size fits all and so I think you speak to a really important point of lived experience, sometimes being the expert knowledge in that room. And that's why it's awesome having young people like you kind of advocating and working in these spaces and bringing that change. And I guess on that same trajectory, how do you define culturally responsive care? It's a term that gets thrown out. Um, different people may be at different points of understanding what this means. So in the briefest of summaries, how do you define culturally responsive care? Um, before I dig into my, my briefest of summaries, um, <laughs> I'm not very good at brief things. Um, I like the fact that we're using the term culturally responsive because I remember when we used to call it culturally competent um, as if like culture was like a uni textbook or something that we had to learn. Yeah, um, the culture can't be, yeah, distilled into something so short and small. Um, I want to take it a step further than culturally responsive um, because I'm weird and antagonistic. Um, but I think the next step is culturally inclusive care. And I think what that looks like for me um, is, isn't just like responding to people's expression of culture, but really including us in shaping what the actual support looks like. So like co-designing it with us, co-producing it with us um, and making sure that we are the people that are being most affected and we are the key decision makers in this. So it's fantastic to see that, you know, Headspace now has a refugee and migrant team. It's, it's the best thing ever. Um, and just seeing that like more things like that, more people that are more diverse voices actually embedded into that and cha changing the way that things actually work. So culturally inclusive, because there's a difference between whether people actually can access something whether and whether they actually want to. Mm you bring up an important point of feeling included at every single step in kind of shaping that journey and the supports available. And what would culturally inclusive care look like for you and your community in the youth mental health space, do you reckon? 
<laughs> it would look like uh, more organizations kind of taking the lead like Headspace has with Raja and Naharika on the board, but at every single level in every single team. Um, because I reckon like, yeah, I, I don't want to like throw too many spanners in the works, um, but I reckon having very diverse people at the highest level is such a respectful and important thing to do. But I think that change really comes when you embed it all the way down. So having people that are representative of the people that you're actually trying to help in every team. Um, so say like the peer work team or the communications team or even like cafe staff, like it's all, it's all throughout that. And I think it's not just Headspace, obviously, it's a sector-wide change that needs to happen. Um, I think representation is just so important, but it needs to be really genuine um, and people need to have equal responsibility and equal weight um, until it just becomes completely normal. So that's what I think culturally inclusive is, is when it's genuinely evil and not, I mean, equal and not just like, yeah, tokenistically here and there. Thanks for sharing that. And what advice do you have for Headspace National when considering embedding culturally inclusive care into our work at various levels? Um, so I was speaking to a colleague um, who uh, about how we can make systems and services more culturally inclusive. Um, and they said to literally burn the DSM-5. And I think that that's very funny, but I think it's not necessarily along those lines, but I think it's about taking experts by profession, people who have you know, had all that knowledge immediately, but I mean, fr from previous evidence-based things that it's still a hold weight, but also holding that in equal weight to the people you're actually helping now. Like if you're going to try to help young people in Melbourne, you should ask young people in Melbourne, not the young people that were in some study somewhere else. Um, I think it's really important to co-design things with the people that are actually being affected right now. And there's so many people in Melbourne that are so ready to give our time and our expertise and share our trauma with you. Um, and I think it's about establishing those pathways and making sure it's respectful and young people are remunerated for their expertise as well. Um, so yeah, just lived experience engagement, um, but making that a lot more formalized um, and up to government standards. <laughs> love that, love that plug as well. And also, what do you reckon are some changes that are needed to make it easier for young people from migrant and refugee backgrounds to access support as well? Um, okay, I'm going to shamefully plug what I'm doing as a job. Um, I'm very sorry. Um, I think that the biggest, the, and this is a broken record as well, the best way to make things accessible and make things actually relevant for us is for us to design them ourselves. Um, so again, just really formalized and genuine respectful lived experience engagement. Um, so an example of that is, so I work um, at the Royal Children's Hospital. I write the lived experience engagement strategy there. Um, and we're getting people with lived experience in and asking them, hey, what would you actually change? And so the difference between that and consultation is that you're actually asking them from the outset, here is a blue sky sort of thinking field. We will give you the resources. We will give you the training. What do you want to change about that? Um, I think historically, a lot of lived experience engagement and youth participation is often um, other people deciding here is a specific area of work, um, say, I don't know. Um, 
I, I can't think of a good enough example, but they decide in the initial area and then they get young people to just consult on that. And so we're already confined to that. Um, I think the difference is, is when you get people really embedded in and making their own decisions and shaping it from a completely green field. Um, and that's, that's when you can really make the most amazing change. And I, I really highly encourage it because it's, it's some of the most wonderful things to witness. And you see that you really optimize the very limited resources that we have in mental health, because when we spend so much time and effort developing things that are actually not that relevant for the people that we're trying to help, it's quite silly. Um, so we should just get them in at the beginning, um, but have them remunerated properly for their time. It sounds like your key message for us today is trust and lived experience. That's where the knowledge and wisdom sits and embed it from the get-go, from day one, from minute one. Absolutely. Um, and any kind of final messages of hope before we transition to maybe some questions from people joining in today? Yeah, sure. Um, I do just want to sh say that like, in the experiences I've shared with you and the experiences that other people might share with you, I, I don't think, and I still don't think any of the people I've ever engaged with in mental health services were malicious. They didn't purposely misinterpret my symptoms, my conditions. They just probably weren't aware of how culture and my mental health were interrelated. And that's because they're not me and that's okay. And I don't resent them for that. And I don't think they're bad people. Um, but I think the really important thing is that we can all learn to do better. Um, and there's this kind of like phrase that I keep in mind when I'm doing my peer work, um, because I definitely assume a lot of things because of I'm human. Um, and I think it's important to just sort of acknowledge like a cultural humility type standpoint. So I, I say to myself, like, I can be discriminatory without intent and without being malicious. And there is no shame in admitting that I was acting from a less informed place. But what is important is that I can learn to do better. Um, and I think it's really identifying our mistakes and seeing them as opportunities um, and learning together. That is actually such a really beautifully worded point because what we're saying here is that no one has the answer. We're going to make mistakes and it's not always from a bad place, but what is key here is opportunities for reflection, for self-reflection, for reflection as an organization on how we're going, how our beliefs and thoughts influence some of the decisions we're making and maybe we need to make more time for the chats. <laughs> um, thank you so much for sharing that so far, Emily. I think we're just going to jump into the questions now. So our first question we have is, what advice would you give each person in Headspace National, how they both individually and collectively can contribute to making Headspace as a whole more culturally inclusive? Sure. Um, so I really don't like, well, I, I think everything takes a huge systemic change to change a lot of the things that have affected us. Um, but I don't think that systemic change is going to happen within necessarily this meeting. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't make a change. I really, really believe in um, the power of individuals. And I think that if you as an individual can learn like just one thing from my talk today, um, maybe just acknowledge the fact that you're not a bad person if you mess up a little um, and you can learn to be more culturally inclusive by having more conversations like this and making sure that the conversation today does continue on beyond this Zoom meeting. It can really change the narrative for the young people that you help. 
and you can catalyze change further. So I think that for me, I've witnessed a lot of stuff like individuals just changing things in their teams, in their families, in their friend groups, and then it ripples out to much, much bigger change um, and throughout the organization. So I think cultural inclusivity is a very necessary change that we need to see um, and we all have a part to play. Um, and I would also like to flag that the fact that we have a refugee and migrant practice team. I was a young person when I joined Headspace five years ago, and I never in a million years thought it would be possible to work in mental health and in like the refugee and pra migrant practice field. And so the fact that we're here today and we are having these conversations, and it's the start of many conversations, is just so affirming. And also knowing that we have leaders like Lily Brown kind of leading and supporting us and bringing conversations around race and culture to the table is just really inspiring and exciting. Um, the next question we have is, thanks for talking so openly about your help-seeking journey, Emily. Interested in what was the turning point for you, like the aha moment when you felt like you were understood? Oh gosh, um, I feel like I have aha moments constantly, um, which is really honestly just so nice. Um, I think the first one that I had uh, was I was in, gosh, I was I was maybe like 15. And I remember a psych that I had told me because I, I was so I was so I had so much hatred for my parents um, because I just I just didn't like the fact that I was other and I blamed them for it. And that's, you know, it's unreasonable. But it was just a reaction that I had at the time. Um, and there were a lot of things that were done to me that didn't mesh with the Australian culture that I was brought up in, but totally made sense in the Vietnamese and Malaysian cultures they had done. So a lot of things at home. Um, and my psychologist told me that healing can make it so that I can acknowledge what has been done to me and really know that I deserve better and I can take control of my journey. Um, and I can acknowledge that what they've done is totally okay in their culture as well. Um, and I don't have to abandon my journey in order to see their side. Um, I think that that's what's really important is that in cultural work, um, you don't have to completely deny your own culture. It doesn't make your culture wrong or your beliefs wrong. It's just sort of seeing their side and seeing that it's okay that other people have these different belief systems and values. Um, I'd say when, when you say turning points and I say they happen every day, it's, it's because it's the conversations that I have. Um, like I've had some with Malika, I've had some with Lisa that have just been so beautiful. Um, and there's just this tiny things, like even you just saying like the, like, you know, the fruit, the cut up fruit thing as well, that for me, that is healing. Um, and it's really just so nice to know that like, we're, we're all kind of part of this. We're all making change and, we're all fighting for like littler versions of ourselves, I think. Um, yeah. Yes, I I really love what you said about fighting for littler versions of yourself. Like, I know a lot of people talk about how they got into mental health because they didn't want like other people that had the same experiences. And I think we can all kind of connect on that experience. I'm definitely fighting for little Malika who like was a little anxious child, but didn't know and yeah, we just got to bring these conversations to the table. And I love that we can bring our knowledge, our expertise and our clinical experience to this conversation too. I think Lisa's going to ask the next question. Lisa? <laughs> hey, um, just pull it up, sorry. 
It's okay. Okay. Um, so, M, mm. as you mentioned, a lot of migrant and refugee um, communities are collectivist in nature. And for many of the communities, identities like those promoted by LGBTQI plus um, community can be pretty controversial. Um, so the question is, can coming out and the call to be um, to visibility be harmful or problematic in leading to further shame and isolation? Do you think there's an alternative? Is that a question you're comfortable answering? Absolutely. Um, I'm a very, very open book. Um, every time someone gives me safe storytelling training, they're like, acknowledge your boundaries. And I still haven't found one just yet. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I, whoever asked this question, I don't know whether you know that I'm queer, but it's, it's nice if I'm giving off queer vibes, I take that as a compliment, or if I mentioned it before and I forgot, sorry. Um, but I think that being queer and um, a person of color is really so messy. Um, I, I really struggled with it um, when I was about 16. Um, and I realized that, well, firstly, I realized that I had a crush on a person that wasn't a boy. Um, and that really freaked me out. And I thought that I would bring literal dishonor to my family um and like Mushu's voice from Mulan was like echoing in my head um but genuinely it's been really hard to navigate not just with my parents and with my family um and that community but also within queer communities and within multicultural communities as well um as a multicultural young person I've often felt really lost within the queer community um most queer communities and services are beautiful and the, but they're catered to western audiences and that can be really discriminatory sometimes um so like the there's like this weird anti-asian sen sentiment in some queer communities um like there's a phrase called no fats no femmes no asians that i heard quite a bit and that was really hard for me to deal with um and then as a queer young person within multicultural communities you know family acceptance is something that i feel most people want particularly queer people as well um and queer people worry about it a lot but adding a cultural layer to that makes it <laughs> so much more complex and I think the societal and gender norms in my culture are so often anti-queer um and therefore anti-me and there are endless examples of explicit and implicit homophobia um an inherent focus on the larger community like family comes first that sort of thing um but it took me a really long time to kind of find what's called um, cutie POC, which is quite cute as an acronym. I think it's queer trans people of color, um, like communities where I felt normal. Um, and that was really nice. Um, I didn't come out to my, my family. Instead, what happened was that I, I was a part of like a day of awareness type thing and I took a photo of me in a pan flag um, and it was posted social media and my mom doesn't have social media but her friends do so her friends sent the photo of me to my mom and my mom messaged me and she's like what country is this and I'm like oh no that's not a country flag that's that's a pansexual flag and she's like what what's that do you like cooking and I'm like no not not quite uh but it means that I can like all, all people that aren't just boys. Um, and this was like two years ago. And she said to me, oh, okay. 
if that makes you happy, that makes us happy. Um, and I cried for like, like an hour. Um, but it's been like lots of time and distance that has really helped them grow to understand that it isn't something that is bad necessarily. Um, I think my parents particularly, and this is maybe different with other parents, they weren't necessarily homophobic or against anything queer. They just really wanted to protect me and wanted me to just seem normal. Um, and they thought me, you know, even more furthering othering myself um, would be dangerous for myself. And so, yeah, that's, that's really it. They just want me to be happy. And now they understand that like, this is me being happy. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Um, so much to reflect on and I really liked what you spoke to in terms of when we think of making safe spaces and safe services, we need to take an intersectional lens to it as well. And maybe that's the topic for our next conversation because we're committing to the series of these um, in, in time. Um, I guess the last question maybe is, um, what is important for clinicians to keep in mind when working with culturally diverse young people and their families? Sure. Um, so for me, even though I am, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <clears throat> even though I am quote unquote culturally diverse, I still think it's really important to kind of like check yourself first and acknowledge your own privilege and like your own beliefs and like how that might be challenged by the person that you're working with. And I think like as a healthcare professional myself, I've been really influenced by my own cultural identity um, along with the cultures within the systems that we work. So like say the headspace organizational culture. And I think we have to be really, like we have to think really critically because many of our cultural beliefs and values are implicit and we can't address them without really questioning them. So if you ask yourself like, how has your home culture influenced the way you behave at work or how has your work culture influenced the way you behave in your team? And how might these affect the young people that you work with? Um, I think working, learning about your own culture is the first step. Um, and then really just respecting the other person as the expert in their own experience is the next step. Um, and I think asking them, what is this like for you? Asking them, particularly with refugee and migrant young people and people who don't come from English speaking backgrounds, finding creative ways to engage with people. Um, I'm very neurodiverse. Even though I rant a lot, I don't prefer speaking, which is weird. Um, I'm much more of like a creative type person. I prefer like art and other things. Um, and so like finding other ways to express themselves is a really good option. Um, and I think the last kind of step is being kind with yourself. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that we're all very much on this learning journey. Um, and this work is really uncomfortable sometimes, but and it makes us really, really vulnerable, but this discomfort can be used very productively and it can help us recognize when change is needed because cultural inclusivity and cultural competence and cultural responsiveness is not a binary. It's a journey that we're all going on. Um, I think everyone has work to do and we all have a place to learn. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So well put, and I really like that reframe of not it being about your cultural identity, about but about your home culture and work culture and school culture. Um, last question, got to respect the time. Um, could you maybe share some of your ideas on how schools and educators can best support students in a culturally inclusive way around mental health? 
I think one of the biggest barriers barriers um, that we have when we talk to particularly young people from diverse experiences and backgrounds is that we actually use the words mental health. Um, I think not terming as mental health is actually a really great idea um, because for me, the term mental health was terrifying. Um, and I think it is to a lot of really young people as well these days. Um, and in school, you know, if you identify as someone that has challenges with mental health, that can lead to like really not great experiences because you see these people every day. Um, I think something that would be really great is considering other ways that we can explore things about well-being. Um, and there's a lot of great work. Um, I'm not First Nations at all, but I would definitely recommend you to look up like Graham G's work around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander social and emotional well-being and how there's like a spectrum um, of the different ways that our well-being can be affected by certain elements. Um, and I think just finding out different ways that we can express emotion and well-being and health um, is really important outside of just necessarily using the words mental health. Um, so that would kind of be my tip. So do start conversations and create safe spaces, but allow people to present and express themselves in whatever way they find is most comfortable, not through the lens of something that might be quite scary. And such an important point. And I think like even just like Headspace promo, just using the seven tips for a healthy headspace as a way to navigate well-being of like checking in around if you're connecting with your friends or checking in if you're eating all right or like making time for exercise and all of those sorts of things. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Emily, and for sharing your insight and wisdom and knowledge. I've personally learned so much from this conversation and just really appreciate how, like, how much you have shared with us today. Um, really, really appreciate it. And I guess also thank you to everyone for joining in today. It's so nice to have so many faces um, joining in on this conversation. Like I said, I didn't know that having these platforms would be possible five years ago. Um, and it's just so incredible that we can be having these conversations with such a large group of people across such a big organization. So thanks to Headspace for that as well. Um, and as I said at the start, like this is a shared journey with the First Nations um, wellbeing and engagement team as well. Like this is a shared conversation, shared learning. So really, um, really thankful for their support as well. Yeah. Um, any final words, Vicky, Lisa, Kate, Emily? Just wanted to thank everyone so much for your time and energy and effort and your continued time and energy and effort. Um, it's really, yeah, this stuff's not easy to talk or think about, um, but it's really, really important. So it's just, it, it means a lot for you to be here. So yeah, thank you.